So we're in Acts 8. We're kind of skipping over uh, the middle section of this chapter. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 8 and then skipping to verses 26 to 40. And so you can stay seated because it's a little longer passage. So uh, if you've got your Bible, if you've got a phone or whatever, you might be looking um, at a passage translation. We also will have it on the screens for you as well. So this is God's word. And Saul approved of his execution, that being Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now on to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Now I have a, a slide to show you. It should be um, 
see this colorful tint uh, on, on the screen there. You've seen this probably in your neighborhood, a house or building wrapped. Uh, these, are, uh, these tents are used to seal in gaseous pesticides that are able to permeate your entire house, killing any termite uh, infestations you might have. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I see these tents in my neighborhood, I get a little anxious, uh, a little afraid that uh, there's, it's a sign that, that maybe this house that's being fumigated, these termites might decide they don't want to eat on poisonous wood and would prefer my nice uh, clean wood in my house. So I, I get a little worried that these termites might spread from the house being treated to mine. I worry that attempting to eradicate uh, the termites will only cause them to spread. And as I was driving by a tented house this week, I, I, I was thinking, you know, that's a similar dynamic to what takes place in Acts 8. Uh, you see, the growing early Christian church in Jerusalem was like a termite infestation in Jerusalem to the religious leaders, to men like Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. Uh, they didn't like what was happening, and they began trying to fumigate Jerusalem, so to speak. Uh, they wanted to wipe out this movement. And we're told that Saul here was ravaging the church by entering into homes and dragging men and women off to prison. Uh, the Greek word that's used here in verse 3 for Paul's ravaging uh, suggests sadistic cruelty. It brings to mind a wild animal tearing a victim's body apart. It's, it's, it's very vicious. And because of the persecution we're told about in verse 1, uh, the, the Christians in Jerusalem uh, leave that city, and we're told that they scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. And so I, I really liked this, this analogy that I had come up with, with the, you know, the tenting of a home and trying to get rid of termites, but I, but I found out uh, later this week that that actually doesn't work because when you tent a house, the termites are killed. Uh, they don't spread. Uh, so, but I still like the analogy, and I'm still going to use it. Um, because, you know, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, that's what, exactly what they wanted to happen. They wanted the, the church to be wiped out. They wanted their poisonous persecution to destroy uh, what was happening, uh, the Spirit of God moving in the lives of these people. But instead of eradicating the infestation, uh, we see the gospel spread throughout the region. We see something dynamic happening. Uh, and we see that happening today. Uh, look at China. Um, it was reported a few years ago that China's on course to become the world's most Christian nation. A leading expert in China uh, on religion believes that there will be close to 250 million Christians in China by the year 2030. It's more than, that will be more than any other nation on this planet. Uh, all this happening while the government has been actively persecuting the church for decades. It's, it's an amazing story of how the gospel spreads. One commentator wrote that following the growth of the church is like following a wounded deer through the forest. Drops of blood mark the trail. And we see that today, and we see that in our passage. Uh, Acts 8 marks a very unique moment in the life of the church. 
This movement that began in the city of Jerusalem with the Jewish people, uh, we're seeing something amazing happen. We're seeing it spread. We're seeing the beginnings of this movement change the world. And what I want to talk about this morning are simply two things. I want to look at why the gospel spreads and how the gospel spreads. So why the gospel spreads and how the gospel spreads. So first, let's look at why the gospel spreads. And the simple answer that I'll, that I'll start with is this, that it's, the gospel spreads because it's been part of God's plan all along. Uh, nothing, surprise, nothing surprises God obviously. He had a plan in place, and this is just the next step in it. Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Acts, told us that the disciples, the apostles, were going to receive the Holy Spirit, that it would come upon them, and that they would be Jesus's witnesses, we're told, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in this story, we're seeing Jesus's words being fulfilled in Acts 8. But of course, this happened, this plan was announced way earlier than the book of Acts. We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We see in Genesis when God makes this covenant with Abraham, God tells Abraham that I will make your descendants numerous, uh, but you will be a blessing to all families of the earth. Here God is telling Abraham, listen, yes, your descendants are going to flourish. I will bless you, but it's for a greater purpose. That's for all the families of the earth. And this is a theme throughout the Old Testament that our God is a God of all the nations. In the book of Psalms uh, 86, verse 9, we're told all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. We see way back in the Old Testament that, that the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, was never intended to be localized in one city among one people. It has always been intended to spread everywhere to the ends of the earth. And that's what we begin to see here in Acts 8. Right before Acts 8, as I was mentioning with Stephen, uh, Stephen makes this speech, and I think he gives a little bit of explanation and how Christianity is able to spread so easily when he's talking about the temple. He's, he's speaking to the religious leaders, and you need to know that the Jewish people at this time really valued the fact that they were in Jerusalem, that the temple of God was there. They believed that that was God's presence among them, and, and that was a unique, special relationship that he, they had with God. And what Stephen says to them in verse, in verse 48 to 50 in chapter 7 of Acts, he says this, It was Solomon who built a house for God, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen tells them, listen, the temple is not God's house. It's not his living space. God is God of the heavens and all of the earth. And he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. That he cannot be contained in one location. The temple was associated with the presence of God. But Stephen's saying, listen, Jesus has come. God has come not to live in a stone house, but to live in 
human form in the person of Jesus. And now, through the Holy Spirit, God's presence is realized in his people. And so it's this radical change of thinking that needed to take place in the people's minds and understanding of of the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what Stephen was announcing, and it got him killed, obviously. But now it's the time for that good news to spread, and that's what's beginning to happen here in Acts chapter 8. The theologian uh, Christopher Wright argues that this mission of God is seen in the Bible itself, in the existence of Scripture, is evidence that mission has always been a part in, uh, of God's plan. It's proof of God's missional intent, that God wants to be known by each and every one of you in this room. That the Bible itself is evidence of that. This is what Wright says. The whole Bible is a missional phenomenon. The writings that now comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and witness of the ultimate mission of God. The Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. This is the heart of the God that we worship. It's for all people to know Him. It's His missional heart. It's not, it's not, see what Wright is saying is like, we don't read the Bible to find passages about missions. See, Wright is arguing and saying, no, the entire project of Scripture, its very existence is evidence of mission in the missional heart of God. And so that's the beginning foundational reason why the gospel spreads here in Acts 8 is because it's always been a part of God's plan. It's always been at the center of his heart. And that's for all people to know him, to worship him, to have life in him. But we also see, I think, that the reason why the gospel spreads is because of the message itself is for all people. It's not limited to a particular culture, ethnicity, social class, moral standing. Uh, Look at Philip. The two stories we read this morning is is about Philip, this kind of middle-class, traditional Jewish man, uh, being sent out on mission. I think we have a map here. It kind of shows you uh, the route that Philip took where he went from Jerusalem north to Samaria. That gives you an idea of where Samaria is. And it also shows you the road to Gaza. Uh, that's where Philip would have interacted with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, what's interesting is when you think of Samaria, it is to, to a traditional Jewish man, uh, Samaritans were half-breeds. If you know the, the story of northern Israel in the Old Testament, the Assyrians came along and conquered that part uh, of God's people. And the result of that was there was intermingling uh, of Jewish families and, and non-Jewish families. There's marriages that took place, and the, the descendants were the Samaritans. And so they were half-breeds. Uh, in fact, a popular prayer among Jewish people in the first century would have been this, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. They did not like each other. 
They were not on speaking terms, so to speak. And yet here, Samaria is the first place we're told about that the gospel goes to. It's a fascinating starting point, is it not? This undeserving group of people is the the first place we see the, the gospel going. And then we look at the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and later on in the story, in verses 26 and 27, we're told that this angel of the Lord tells Philip to go, rise, go to the road down to Gaza from Jerusalem. It's a desert place, and so that's what Philip did. He went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. He was part of this court of the queen of Ethiopia, and he was in charge of all her treasure. So this Ethiopian would have been a black African. He would have been a foreigner. Uh, Jews would have regarded him as kind of a barbarian, in fact. He's also a eunuch, so he's been castrated. Anyone that would have worked uh, with the royal family on a regular basis would have been castrated. Uh, You know, protective measures uh, for anyone that has a close proximity to the royal family on a regular basis. So here is Philip, this average, traditional, middle-class Jewish man, uh, spreading the gospel to this black, African, Ethiopian man who is racially different from him, sexually altered, uh, viewed as culturally inferior, as different as Philip as you can get. And yet he goes. The gospel goes to this man. Now, it's argued by some that Christianity is the most culturally inclusive religion on the face of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't exclusive truth claims uh, to the Christian faith. I mean, we've said that God is the God of all the nations, that there is one God, uh, you know, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There are exclusive claims within Christianity. Uh, But it, it is clear, the evidence is clear that only the Christian faith has spread to the ends of the earth uh, in, a, in a unique way that has been inclusive to all cultures. Uh, Laman Sene is a, an African scholar. He, he's a professor at Yale Divinity School. He wrote a book. It's called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he makes this argument. He talks about how all major religions on the face of the earth are geographically tied to their source, culture, that the majority population centers are strongest where they started. Uh, For example, if you look at the Middle East and Northern Africa, you you have countries there where 90 plus percent of the population is Muslim. You know, that was close to where the religion was started and that's where the population centers are greatest. Look at Buddhism. Uh, You go to, to East Asia, the countries in those areas, you have uh, populations close to 90% are Buddhist. Look at Hinduism. Go to India, South Asia. Again, clo- you know, large, large, large percentage of the population is according to that faith. It's true of all religions except one. The Christian faith is unique in its ability to spread to cultures all over the earth. In North America, 12% of the population is Christian. If you go to Europe, maybe, you know, similar numbers, 15, 20%. Africa, 20%. You know, you go all to all the continents and you you get the sense that Christianity has been able to spread and take hold into various types of cultures. 
And Richard Bauckham, the, the theologian and author, said, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. There must be something unique to it. And, and I think it's the message. It's the message of the gospel. You aren't accepted by God based on your ethnicity, on your education, on your social status, on your nationality. Any of these things that we might turn to to gain our significance, to gain our acceptance to, by God, none of those things are what get you in. It is only through Jesus Christ alone. And that transcends culture. Only Christianity has this understanding that is unique. Every other religion offers you some sort of teaching for you to follow and climb the ladder to God. Only Christianity comes along and says, no, God has come looking for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in Christianity being able to come into various cultures and transform people and change their life. The gospel's for everyone because there aren't any hoops that any of us need to jump through in order to receive Jesus and receive all the blessings that he offers us. In fact, I think the one thing that the gospel does require is a level of understanding of your own need of your own brokenness, uh, a certain level of humility that, that isn't connected to any culture, but is being able to have an awareness to look at yourself and say, you know, I need God. We see that in the Ethiopian eunuch. It's, it's fascinating. His story is fascinating. In, in verses 27 and 28, we're told that he was coming from Jerusalem. <coughs> so that means he had traveled probably a thousand miles to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, maybe he had converted to Judaism, or maybe he was in the process. Uh, it's obvious that the Ethiopian eunuch was searching. He's looking for God. We see it in this pilgrimage that he's taken. We see it in the fact that he has a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. That would have been a very difficult thing to come, come, uh, come in contact with. Uh, he has this scroll. He, he's reading the scroll. He's obviously doing the hard work, searching, looking, trying to figure out life. He is, he is longing for something. God is preparing him in this moment. And I hope that for some of you who might be searching this morning that this Ethiopian eunuch is a real encouragement to you. And, and I think a challenge. If you are at a place where you're looking for God and you're searching, I want you to see the lengths that this this eunuch is going to find God. He's not sitting back passively. He is humble enough to see his need. He tells Philip, you know, as Philip comes alongside of him, uh, he tells Philip, hey, I don't understand this. And unless someone tells me and explains it to me, I'm not going to get it. And this is after he reads the prophet Isaiah, the passage that's mentioned here. Uh, the suffering servant. And Philip comes along and, and, and guides him. 
It's a great picture of the humility that comes when someone is looking for God and is willing to say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answers. And that's what's needed. Maybe for you, if you're searching this morning, are you willing to say that? You know, I don't know, and I'm willing to do some hard work to look uh, and to search and to find, you know, who is God? Who is this Jesus? Maybe God is preparing your heart like he was preparing the Ethiopian eunuch. This passage that he mentions is so appropriate. It's the passage of the, uh, where in the Old Testament the prophet Isaiah is, is, is foreshadowing the coming of Christ. We see him talk about this sacrifice uh, that is being made. And it speaks of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That Christ put himself in our place so that we might have life in God. It's a powerful passage where God has guided this man and Philip is there to walk along with him and to explain to him what's going on. And we see this beautiful picture of the gospel uh, spreading in the life of this man who, who says, hey, why can't I be baptized? He baptizes him. And then Philip goes on. And where does that Ethiopian eunuch go? He goes home. Here we see the gospel spreading to Africa. The very first convert. It's incredible how the gospel spreads and why. Now, let's look at how, how indeed it does spread. And, and it's pretty simple. We see that the gospel spreads through the words and deeds of God's people. Uh, the author, Mark Galley, said this, For his own unfathomable reasons, God chooses to disguise himself when he comes to this planet. And there have been few disguises better than the church. God uses everyday people like you to spread the gospel. You know, we're told at the beginning of this chapter that when the persecution took place, the Christians scattered throughout the region. But you notice, except the apostles. See, up to this point, we've been witnessing how the apostles, like Peter, they were the ones doing all the heavy lifting, right? They were, Peter's preaching these sermons and thousands are coming to faith. And so if you're an everyday Christian, you're sitting back going, go Peter, go do it. Man, just get Peter up. Sign up Peter to do these speaking engagements. Thousands will come to faith. We see a change happen here. It's simple, ordinary guys like Philip. He wasn't an apostle. He was part of the seven. He was designated to serve the, the physical needs of, of the church there in Jerusalem. But once the persecution took place, he was out of there. He was going. He, he was a man like you. We're told uh, that Philip goes to Samaria, and there the crowds uh, pay attention to what Philip was saying. They heard him. They saw the signs that he did. Here Philip is doing uh, miracles, and the people are impacted by it. It's not only his words, but his actions. Now, you might say, well, <coughs> Excuse me. And you might say, you know, I'm not able to do miracles like Philip. Um, but you know, miracles today are a little different in the ways that you're able to love, the ways you're able to serve, the ways you're able to pursue reconciliation, the ways you're, be, you're able to show the love of Christ to the people that you interact with every day. That in of itself can be a miracle that God can use to speak to people. As you use your words to tell them about Jesus. And so it should be encouraging for each and every one of us to say, wow, 
we see how the gospel spreads through everyday people. Like you, like me. Philip here is being led by the Spirit of God. We're told in verse 26 that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Told him to go find... Uh, he doesn't even tell him right here who he's going to find. He just tells him to go. And Philip goes, not knowing. And, and I love that he tells him to go uh, to a desert place. Not very inviting. I mean, that, that, here the Spirit of God is telling him to go to a place. It doesn't sound like a kind of place you'd want to go. And Philip is responsive. Uh, Philip is listening to the Spirit. Philip is, is sensitive to where the Spirit is leading him. And so he goes. And there, uh, you know... I'm sure Philip probably had some tension and struggle there because he'd been in Samaria and he'd seen lots of people come to faith. He'd seen the Spirit of God working. Philip has a great crowd, comfortable setting, success, and God tells him, hey, go. Now's the time to go. Don't sit around. I've got a job for you. And isn't it interesting? He, he, you know, God has him leave the crowds in Samaria for one man. For one individual, I think that speaks so much to the heart of God. Yes, God has a heart for our city. He has a heart for, for all the people here in Long Beach and the surrounding area. But he, God has a heart for the individual as well. He has a heart for you. And, and Philip had taken on that calling uh, to pursue the individual as he goes in faithfulness to reach out uh, after this Ethiopian eunuch. And I just want to encourage you with this as you, as you think about your, the role that you have to play. That's what I want you to leave with this morning is that the gospel will continue to spread today as you, you take on that mission of God, that heart of God, and spread the gospel among the people you interact with throughout the week. It might be your family, it might be your coworkers, it might be your neighbors. It might be any number of people that God is placing in your life to spread the gospel. Now, I know that's intimidating to many of you because you're thinking there, you're sitting there thinking, you know, I, I don't know what to say. They're going to ask me difficult questions. I'm not going to have answers to. Uh, and, and, and so it's intimidating, and I understand that. But I love how simple this this passage makes it in Philip's interaction with the eunuch. I don't know if you noticed it, but, but after the eunuch asks Philip the question, you know, you know, what's this passage mean? Philip responds this way. He opened his mouth in verse 35, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so just let me relieve you of the pressure. You do not have, all the, have to have all the answers. You do not have to be a theologian. You do not have to be a good uh, debater to share Christ. You just have to know Christ. And you just have to offer him to people in humility, in grace, in compassion, in love. Just tell people about him. Don't get too complicated. Don't feel like you have to win an argument. Because it's the Spirit of God that will work in that person's life. The Spirit of God who is probably preparing that person, even now, for you to interact with them. And you just need to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God and offer Jesus to them.
You know, I, I've found that right now in this part of my life, by the way, this is a hard passage to speak because I am not an evangelist. I'm not good at sharing my faith. I'll be honest with all of you. I asked the prayer team to pray for me before this passage. And, and so I wish I could stand up here and talk about um, the, the tens of hundreds of people that have come to faith through my, my evangelism. Uh, that is not the case. I'm very relational, one-on-one in my evangelism, developing relationships, trying to develop that trust. That's my approach. I'm more of an introvert, and that's tend, that tends to be how introverts do it, and that's okay. Uh, but I will tell you, the thing that I've really learned as I've grown in this area is to pray, actively pray, when I'm having these conversations with people. You know, I have a very... I have a a neighbor who, right when he found out I was a pastor, he has been, he, every time he sees me, he, he teases me about being a pastor. I mean, he really leans in on it. Uh, making jokes, you know, uh, especially like on a Saturday, he's like, oh, are you prepping for your sermon? I'm like, yeah, I am. He says, oh, you know, you're going you're gonna to tell him all the lies tomorrow, that, you know. I mean, he's very, you know, he's teasing me. He's teasing me, but he's very upfront about it. Uh, he's not a Christian. He doesn't believe what I believe. Um, but, but, you know, in my conversations with him, I'm praying, Lord, you know, give me that opportunity. Give me sensitivity. Uh, another f- uh, man I've gotten to know uh, through my kids' um, uh, sports, uh, very different politically from me. I mean, very different. We're, you know, but, but we're developing a good relationship. We're beginning to talk. And he shared some very um, personal things with me. And I'm beginning to share personal things with him. And, and that's beginning to um, develop trust there. He's actually an atheist. He's a Jew. Um, uh, doesn't believe in God, but is very interested in knowing more about what I think. And, and we actually, he wants to have breakfast or lunch on a regular basis. And so we're going to do that. And again, there I'm praying, Lord... Open his heart. Give me opportunities. Another woman at the kids' school that I'm, that I'm meeting with um, has had some very um, kind of unusual supernatural experiences that she was telling me about. Uh, she, she grew up uh, in, a, in a Catholic environment um, and so was very hesitant about talking to me. And yet these conversations are opening up. And, and, and again, as I talk with her and as I ask her questions, just praying, uh, Holy Spirit, Make me sensitive. Uh, let me hear her and give me words to speak. And I know for all of you, you have people in your life like that. And, and, and a big part of it is stopping and praying for the Spirit to work in and through you. To have ears to hear, to listen. You know, I love the scene of the eunuch and Philip. You can imagine the, Phil, the, the eunuchs in the, in the chariot. And, and Philip comes along and he's, you almost get the idea he's just kind of running next to the chariot and the Ethiopian's just got his scroll on his lap and he kind of looks over and Philip's like, hey, you know, what's up? <laughs> just, just, just hanging out. He's just there. Uh, hey, hey, you know, what's going on? And he's like, hey, come up. Let's talk about God. And I wonder, do you believe if that could, can that happen with you? If you're there, if you're present, if you're willing I know God can use you. And so in this time that we have left, what I'm going to ask us to do is to spend a few moments praying. And so what I would like to invite is a time of silent reflection 
for you to, to, to sit with God for a little bit. Uh, ask God to show you. Maybe there's some people in your life that he's really encouraging you to take bold steps with or maybe even to listen to the Spirit. And I would like us to take some time, and would you be so bold, uh, if you want, to even say some names out loud uh, of people in your life that you want to pray for, that you want to pray for the Spirit of God to work in their hearts. And so we're going to spend a few moments just praying, and as the Spirit leads, if if there are people that come to mind, uh, please say those names out loud, and we'll do that for a little while. And then I'll close this in.